Hello, family, and welcome. We're Bob and Penny Lord, and we want to share with you Blessed Kateri Tekawitha, the lily of the Mohawks, the seed which bore fruit from the blood of the martyrs of North America. The Lord moves in great sweeping motions when he wants to accomplish something. Kateri's mother was raised under the mantle of the French Jesuits. She was baptized in Trois-Rivières and lived with French settlers for a time. When the Jesuits pulled their missions back to Quebec in 1649, Kateri's mother was taken prisoner by the Iroquois Indians and brought down the Mohawk River with the rest of the Indian captives. She landed in Asinanan, a beautiful Mohawk village in what is today Oriusville in upstate New York near Albany. There she met her husband, a chief of one of the villages. They married and settled down there. Nothing is known about her relationship with her husband or the people of the village. She was a foreigner who spoke a different language and had different customs. She was not able to practice her Christian religion because the black robes had not yet returned to this area. She and her husband had two children, Kateri, born in 1656, and her younger brother. They lived a comparatively peaceful life in Asinanon. Her mother tried to incorporate the teachings of the church with the positive values of her Indian background. Kateri was a beautiful child, possessing the best features of both mother and father. But sadly, when she was about four years old, a deadly epidemic of smallpox erupted and swept through the village like wildfire. Kateri's mother died first, then her brother and her father. Kateri's mother had always prayed for the baptism of her children, but in her lifetime, she did not see her children officially baptized. After the death of her family, Kateri was taken in by her uncle, her father's brother, who was made head chief of the village. Her actual upbringing was put in the hands of various aunts who had loved her as a relative, but they were definitely not her mother. The smallpox epidemic had devastated the village and Kateri personally. In addition to losing her family, she was permanently scarred from the disease. Her face, beautiful before the smallpox hit her, became extremely pockmarked. Her eyesight was severely affected to the point of being partially blind for the rest of her life. She walked with her head down, mostly to protect her eyes from the sunlight, but also because she couldn't see clearly in front of her. It was because of this condition that she was called Tekawitha. Asanan was considered an evil omen to the villagers. It had been the scene of almost total destruction to the people there. The chiefs determined it was best to leave Asanan because evil spirits were there. They chose a spot on a hill facing the river about a mile to the west of Asanan. It was called Kanawaga. In addition to being very beautiful, it was a very strategic location. From this vantage point, they could see their enemies approaching. This is where Kateri spent her childhood. When she was seven or eight, our little saint was taught the basic duties of an Indian woman. She drew water from the stream and ground the corn for the favorite meal of the people, Sagamite. She did all the tasks an Indian child would have done in those days. But perhaps the most important job she was trained for was marriage. Getting a girl married was of the utmost importance for the well-being and survival of the community. Kateri knew this, but she did not feel the same way her relatives did about marriage. She didn't know why at the time. 
She only knew she didn't see herself as being married. The Lord had planted a seed in her heart from her mother, and it would bloom at the proper time. The Indians and the French went through a series of battles against each other. One time the Indians winning, the next time the French winning. The French finally brought together all their heavy artillery and attacked the Indians with all their force. Kateri's beautiful little village of Kanawaga was devastated by one of those attacks. The magnificent village was burned to the ground after all the food stored had been taken by the French. The chiefs of the village were petrified. They immediately asked for peace. They sent gifts to the French leaders and asked for terms of peace, including Jesuit black robes to be sent into various villages. When the French heard this, they knew the Indians meant business. They acted immediately. Three Jesuits were sent on this mission. They were supposed to go to the most important village in the Mohawk community, but they were detoured to the village of Kanawaga, where they met Kateri Tekawitha. When the black robes came into the village, little Kateri, who was 11 years old at the time, was given charge of taking care of their needs. She was able to observe them at close range for the entire length of their stay. She made their meals. She observed them as they went around the village, ministering to the Christian Huron prisoners who were there. She watched as they set up a longhouse as a chapel and prayed there. Kateri's uncle hated the Christians and the Jesuits. Because of the political situation, he had to be courteous and tolerant of the black robes. But it was a cold, hateful tolerance. He had to allow them to build their chapel in one of the longhouses. He had to stand by and allow his people to be evangelized by these men. But one thing Kateri's uncle could do was to make sure the Christian message did not invade his household. No one from his longhouse was allowed to take part in any of the Christian activities that went on with the black robes. Kateri had such a longing to learn about the Catholic faith. Young people would go to the chapel longhouse for the teachings about Jesus, the saints, and the truths of our church. She couldn't wait to eavesdrop when they returned. What, that the, what had the Lord taught them through the black robes? Kateri circulated among the groups of young natives, listening to their excited sharing, but she was not able to be part of it. She yearned to learn about the faith, but she knew her uncle would be really upset if she had anything to do with the black robes. Kateri retreated into herself. She became quieter than she had been. She became more removed from everyone in the village. All she wanted was to learn about the Lord, but she wasn't allowed to, so she stayed by herself. Her aunts thought she was lo lonely and needed to find a spouse, so the aunts started a campaign to get Kateri married. This was definitely not what she wanted. On one particular occasion, Kateri came in from the fields and was told to dress in her finest clothing immediately. She did as she was told. A handsome young brave walked into the longhouse. He was introduced to Kateri. She was very polite. She thought something was peculiar when he sat next to her. Her aunts told her to feed the brave. This was a natural thing for her to do. She always took care of serving guests at the house. So she got up to prepare and serve the brave his dinner. She had the food in her hand and was walking over towards the brave when something hit her. We know it was the Holy Spirit or her guardian angel. Kateri realized what was happening, what she was doing. If she had given the food to the brave and he ate it, she would be married. She immediately ran out of the longhouse, 
threw the food on the ground and ran into the woods. Her ants were furious. They ran after her, but to no avail. Gateri was nowhere to be seen. Gateri felt the call of Jesus more and more compellingly. But she couldn't say anything to the priests, or to anyone for that matter, because of her uncle's animosity towards the black robes and Christians. To make matters worse, many of the members of the tribe were turning their lives over to Jesus. Her uncle and the other chiefs of the tribe had real concerns. They were afraid they were losing their best men and the tribe would dwindle down to nothing. There were only 450 braves to defend the whole nation. Another 50 braves and their families planned to follow the other braves who had departed for Quebec. They had their canoes packed with supplies and they were ready to go. However, the fear that they may be leaving their tribe unprotected in the event of an attack made these families wait for a more expedient time. This growing momentum now made Kateri's uncle opposed to any of his people further joining the Christian movement. Kateri longed to take part in the beautiful ceremonies of the Christian community. In midsummer of 1675, Kateri's 19th year, a new black robe came upon the scene, Father Jacques de Lambaville. When Kateri saw him, she knew that she could talk to this priest. He had a great deal of sensitivity and was very gentle with the Indians. But still she hesitated. The Lord knew that if this was ever going to happen, if Kateri were to become the sign and symbol of the church among the Indians, he was going to have to make it happen. So one day when Father de Lambaville was making his rounds of the longhouses, he passed by Kateri's. He knew the women of the longhouse would be out in the field working. They were so industrious. So he first passed by the longhouse without entering. But then a few yards away, he thought to himself that there might be a sick person in the longhouse who would need his attention. So he picked up the flap and entered. There, to his surprise, he saw Kateri lying on her mat. She had injured her foot and wasn't able to go out into the fields with the other women. She wasn't able to walk very well at this time. As soon as she saw Father Lambaville, she got up. She poured out her entire heart, sharing how she longed to learn about the Catholic faith and become a Catholic. The priest could see from the very first interview how powerfully the Holy Spirit would work through this girl. As soon as her foot healed, Kateri began going to the chapel to receive instructions from the priest. Strangely, or according to the will of God, her aunts did not stop her from going to the chapel to learn about the faith. Actually, the aunts were believers, but they were so very afraid of the uncle, they had to be extremely cautious about mentioning Catholicism. This was the beginning of the most beautiful part of Kateri's life. Everything she had ever experienced was in anticipation of this time. She loved the teachings of the church about the saints and the angels, about the Eucharist and Our Lady. In December 1675, a miraculous statue of Our Lady was brought from Dinant, Belgium, to Canada. She was called Notre Dame de Foy. The statue was found carved in the middle of a giant oak tree. It was given to the black robes in Canada. The priest began the unveiling, unveiling ceremony on the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Then, for the next few Saturdays, he unveiled the statue again and again. The people of the village testified that a strong urge of, surge of 
spirituality went through the community as soon as the statue of Our Lady was brought to them. Once the statue of Our Lady showed her strength in the parish, a great deal of piety blanketed the village. Those who had criticized the new belief found themselves as converts, asking to be accepted into the church. People from all over the area came to the village to pray the rosary in front of the statue of Notre Dame de Foy. New converts blossomed as well as an infusion of renewed, more powerful spirituality among the older converts. The Terry was among those who made this pilgrimage to the Shrine of Our Lady. For her, it was an extra special sacrifice in that she was walking in the cold with poor eyesight, which was extremely sensitive to sunlight and snow. But she couldn't look up and she couldn't look down, but she persevered. She would not have missed it for anything. Kateri was a vibrant example of how a convert should be. She embraced everything she could regarding the faith. She was so eager to be baptized, she looked as if she would burst with joy. Father de Lambavie was as excited as she. He couldn't help it. Her piety and reverence were infectious. He couldn't see Kateri waiting the two years normally required for catechumens to be baptized. He decided that Easter Sunday, April 5th, 1676, would be the perfect day for her baptism, as it was the most important day in the church calendar. The ceremony was glorious. Father baptized Kateri and two other converts at the same time. Almost the entire village turned out for the ceremony. The priest took water, placed Kateri's head over the baptismal font, poured the water on her head, and said the words, Catherine. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. She stood up. A white veil was placed on her head. She was given a lighted candle. She stood there in the middle of the church while a children's choir sang hymns in honor of the occasion. But Kateri couldn't hear any of it. Her heart was about to burst. It was as if heaven opened up before her, and she could see in her mind's eye a heavenly army of angels gently swooping down towards her with our Lord Jesus, our Mother Mary, and all the saints, especially her namesake, Catherine of Siena, surrounding her, embracing her, welcoming her into the body of Christ. She was home. She would never leave. Life was so exciting for Kateri. Each day she learned something new about the church. If it wasn't about Our Lady, it was about the saints or the angels or the Eucharist. She became completely absorbed in her new faith. Her life was one of great peace and involvement in the Christian activities of the village. Prior to her baptism, she had been a rose in the shadows, hidden in her longhouse, never being allowed to show her great love for Jesus. Now she bloomed into a model convert for the community. At the beginning, she lived in comparative peace. Even her family allowed her to take part in her newfound faith. They would never call her Kateri, however, which was her, which was her Christian name. They only referred to her Stekawitha, her Indian name. But little by little, word got back, especially to her uncle, how she was turning those who had, who had left back to the faith. Braves who had converted to the faith were leaving the village and moving to the village of prayer in Montreal, where they could practice their religion in peace. So the flames of anger built up in Kateri's uncle and were aimed at her. 
Kateri had always been a hard worker, as was everyone in her longhouse. Now, however, she would not work on Sunday or holy days. She went to the chapel where she attended Mass as often as possible, prayed the rosary, and took part in any devotional practices available. Her aunts be began to become annoyed with this behavior. They berated her, calling her lazy. Kateri put up with all the insults and degradations her family had to give her. Within a short period of time, the persecution, the persecution which had originally been imposed on her only by her family spread throughout the entire village. Everybody began taunting her. But the situation became out of control. Her uncle once sent a warrior into her longhouse with a tomahawk. No one knew for sure if he wanted to kill her or just frighten her. But when the warrior stormed into the longhouse with tomahawk poised to come down on her head, Kateri just bowed her head in acceptance of the will of God. This shook her attacker so he stopped in his tracks and ran out of the longhouse, never to return. Kateri had been spared this time, but Father Lamberville uh, feared for her life and for her spiritual well-being. The situation was getting worse and worse in the village. So Father suggested she live, leave Kanawaga and go to the village of prayer in Montreal. She was initially stunned by the idea of leaving her home. But once she got used to the idea, Kateri really began to look forward to her move. She came to desire it with all her heart. A plan was conceived by her adopted sister and her husband, who had moved to Canada some time before. When they arrived at Kanawaga, the men went to the longhouse of Father de Lambeville. The priest was happy that they had come to take her away. They worked together on a plan. Once they had determined the plan, Kateri's brother-in-law went to visit her secretly. He told her of the plan to get her out of the village. They waited until the middle of the night. Then they came for Kateri. They made an animal sound which had been predetermined. Although she was very tired, she jolted out of her sleep, put a blanket over her shoulders, and quietly left the longhouse. The three of them traveled through the night until they came to a place where they had to walk with a canoe over their heads through the woods. The brother-in-law had to go to Schenectady to buy provisions for the trip. Kateri and the Huron waited at a prearranged place for him. What no one knew was that the feared uncle was also in Schenectady, selling skins to the Dutch. When news of Kateri's disappearance became known in Kahnawaga, the fastest running brave was sent to Schenectady to tell the uncle that she had been kidnapped. The brave arrived shortly after the brother-in-law, whom the uncle had never met. The brother-in-law got his provisions and left immediately to warn Kateri and the Huron convert that the uncle had found out what had happened. The uncle loaded his musket with three shells to kill anyone who had kidnapped his niece and maybe even his niece, Kateri. Then he set out to find them. Kateri's brother-in-law was aware the uncle would be coming after them and he would be much faster than they. The chief didn't have to carry provisions and was not slowed down by Kateri, who could not walk as fast as her uncle. So the brother-in-law devised a plan. Kateri and the Huron convert were to walk half a mile ahead of him. When the uncle finally caught up with the brother-in-law, he would pretend to be a Mohawk hunter in the woods. He would fire a shot, which would warn them that the uncle was coming. They were then to hide out in the stumps of trees off the road until the uncle passed them. 
Then the brother-in-law would catch up with them and they would continue on until they approached the river where they would canoe up to Canada. Everything worked exactly as planned. Kateri and the Huron had hidden in the brush as per their agreement. They saw the uncle pass them by. Shortly after, the brother-in-law joined them. They all continued on their journey to the village of prayer in Kanawaka, Canada. The trip to the New World, Kateri's New Jerusalem, was breathtaking. The welcome received by Kateri at the mission of St. Francis Xavier was not to be believed. First, she had a reunion with a sister whom she had not seen for years. On that day, Kateri also met many of her former villagers who had left Kanawaga for this better life. They were so happy to see her. Kateri couldn't help but notice that there was no cursing at her, no insults, no badgering, no drunken, drunkenness, none of the things she abhorred about her former home. There was one thing which was missing, for which she thanked the great spirit of God, and that was craven fear. She no longer felt jeopardized every time she left her longhouse. When she went to sleep at night, she did not fear that she would not be alive the next morning. She felt a great peace. Kateri arrived at the mission in October 1677. She threw herself into her new life with great joy. She went to the first mass every morning at 5 o'clock. She crushed the corn, cooked meals, and served the dinner. Kateri also made moccasins and decorated clothing with multicolored wampum. She did all of this with great delight. But her happiest time was in the chapel in front of the Blessed Sacrament. She longed to receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus in the Eucharist. She prayed to Our Lady to make the time go faster so that she could have her son inside her heart. Kateri gathered enough courage to go to her priest, Father Shonalak, and meekly whispered that she longed to receive our Lord Jesus in communion. He looked at her with such love. He knew how special she was and what a strong personal relationship she had with Jesus. This gift of receiving him inside her body should not be held back from her any longer. He smiled and told her she would receive First Holy Communion on Christmas Day. It was the beginning of Advent, just a few short weeks away. On Christmas Eve, Kateri received the Sacrament of Reconciliation. What a great gift this was for her. She had never experienced the release afforded her after she told her sins to her priest. Then the time came. Midnight Mass and Christmas Eve was a special time for Kateri, as it was for the entire community. She always looked forward to celebrating the birth of a Jesus. But today, this day, Christmas Day, 1678, had to be the most important day of her life. She waited as the hours ticked by. She spent most of her time in prayer. We believe that this time when she first received our Lord Jesus in the Eucharist on her tongue, Kateri experienced her first ecstasy. It actually lasted in some form the entire length of Christmas Day. She was in union with her God, in communion with her God through the consecrated hands of her priest. She stayed in the church those first few hours of Christmas with her Jesus. She held on to him in the Eucharist. She would not be allowed to receive him again until Easter Sunday, which was four long months away. Kateri had an ongoing battle with almost everyone in the village about marriage, including her sister, her adopted aunt Anastasia, and even the priest, Father Sholenek. 
They all insisted she get married. It came to a head when her sister became very upset with Kateri and called the priest to talk sense into her. She proclaimed to the priest her desire to keep herself for Jesus alone. To this end, she asked to be able to take a formal vow of virginity to which the priest agreed. However, Father said it would have to take place on the Feast of the Annunciation, March 25th, 1679, and she would have to prepare herself for this. Kateri advanced far beyond any of her peers in spirituality. She spent all her time in communion with the Lord, but her union with the Lord, the highest form of relationship with our God possible, inflicted a heavy toll on her body. The toll very quickly showed itself on Kateri's face and body. From the middle of the summer of 1679 until Holy Week of 1680, Kateri suffered terribly. She had taken on her shoulders the sins of her people. It was almost as if Kateri suffered the passion of our Lord Jesus. From Palm Sunday to Spy Wednesday, she suffered brutally. Her last day on earth, she summoned all the strength she had left to pray with the priest in her community as they renewed her baptismal vows and commended her body and soul to our Lord Jesus in heaven. Her last words were, Jesus, Mary, I love you. She went into a final agony. Slightly after three in the mm. afternoon, everyone noticed a slight twitch on her mouth. Then her entire being relaxed. She had passed over. It was Wednesday, April 17, 1680. She was 24 years old. The first miracle of Kateri Tekawitha occurred within 15 minutes after her death. Her face, which had been scarred from smallpox from the time she was four years old, all of a sudden lost all the scars. She was transformed into the beautiful girl she had been as a child. After that, people flocked to her grave, people with all infirmities, the blind, the lame, and the sick. Healings took place in mammoth proportions. After a while, small packets of dirt from her grave were handed out and given credit for healings and conversions. Some testified that merely thinking of Kateri, asking for her intercession, brought about miracles. Her first apparition came on Easter, Sun Easter Monday, six days after her death. Father Choquetier was praying in his room at four in the morning. Kateri appeared in front of him surrounded by dazzling light. She didn't say anything, but he heard a voice, not hers, say in Latin, I appear every day. Father Choquetier explained the vision remained for two hours with prophetic signs appearing on either side of Kateri. On her left, I saw a church toppled over and on her right, an Indian tied to a post amid flames. Both of these prophecies were fulfilled within seven years. The first, in which, in which the church toppled over, occurred on August 19, 1683. The second, in which he saw the Indian tied to a post amid flames, referred to an Indian who was burned alive seven years later, the first Indian martyr. Many apparitions and, and healings have taken place through the intercession of our little saint. Pope John Paul II beatified Kateri on June the 22nd, 1980. She is the first fruit nourished by the blood of the North American martyrs. Praise Jesus. We love, we love you. you. God, God bless, bless you. you. Please load our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Here is how to download our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Simply with your iPhone or Android device, go to the App Store 
Search for Bob and Penny Lord app and download it. It's that simple. Here's what you can do with our free Bob and Penny Lord app. Number one, the, there's a link to our marketplaces, our websites, uh, our uh, blog, and this podcast. The second link is to our Bob and Penny Lord TV channel where you can access all of our videos as seen on EWTN plus a whole lot more. Thank you very much.